This morning's reading comes from Hebrews, as Nick's just announced, and it's chapter 4, and it can be found on page 1204 in the Church Bibles. So Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14 and going as far as verse 10 in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Steve. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of job hunting uh, and looking through job adverts seeing something that you think, yes, that would be perfect for me. I'd love to apply for that. And then looking at the person spec and realizing that there's no way on earth that you're ever going to be the person that they've said they want. There, are, there is, in fact, a, a, a little corner of the internet devoted to job descriptions where it would be impossible to fulfill what is required in the person specification. For instance, the advert for a Latin teacher, where one of the requirements was that you're a native speaker of Latin. Sebastian Ramirez tweeted in 2020 uh, about uh, an IT job that he was looking at, uh, where one of the requirements was four years' experience in using the technology Fast API. Sebastian Ramirez tweeted and said, well, I couldn't possibly apply for that because I've only got one and a half years' experience that I've had since I invented it. (laughs) 
There was also a, a job advert uh, uh, on there that I spotted uh, looking for, for, for wait staff at a restaurant. And it said, the applicant will be 18 years old and have 20 years of experience. <laughs> Now, when you see person specs like that, you think, well, that's ridiculous. I couldn't ever do that. No one could ever do that. But thinking about Jesus as high priest, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, the writer to the Hebrews sets out the person specification for a high priest. And it's a person specification that when you first look at it, you think, well, there's no way Jesus could fulfill that. Here's the job, high priest. But actually, it's a job description. It's hard to imagine how the Son of God could fulfill it. Let's just look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5 on page 1204 of the P Bibles. Halfway down on the left-hand side. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. So the first thing on the job description is that the high priest has to be a human being selected from amongst other human beings, selected from, from amongst the people to serve the people as their representative to God. And, and the job is to make sacrifices. So, selected from among the people. Then secondly, verse 2, able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. And why able to do that? Well, because he himself, the end of verse 2, is subject to weakness. Uh, and then verse 3 isn't so much part of the person spec as kind of explanation of that weakness. Uh, that's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. Every high priest from Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, right down to the day of Jesus, was weak. You see that with Aaron uh, and the golden calf, don't you? If you've been with us as we've been through Exodus in previous months, you'll remember that Aaron, the great high priest, appointed from among the people led the people in terrible rebellion against God. He was a sinner. He was weak. But because of his sin and his weakness, he was able to sympathize with others who were also weak, who were ignorant of God, going astray. And then verse 4, no one takes this honor on himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So three things, really. Selected from among the people, able to sympathize with the weakness of the people, and appointed by God. The writer of the Hebrew says Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that job description. But how can that be? Look back up at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, he's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Well, how could it be that Jesus the Son of God, could fulfill that job description. Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see both partly how he fulfills it, but also the writer kind of ratchets up the tension on how it's possible. So he quotes two verses from the Old Testament, one of which he's already quoted in chapter 1 and verse 5. In the same way Jesus did not take, or rather, sorry, in the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, 
you are my son, today I've become your father. Which in chapter 1, verse 5, if you can remember back that far when we were looking at it, is, is actually the beginning of, of, of the writer showing that the son is greater than the angels because he is the eternal son of God. Back in at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, the writer has said that, well, let's see together, just flick back a couple of pages. The writer said that in the last days, God spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, if part of the job description for Aaron and all the high priests who followed on from him was to share the weakness of the people and to be able to empathize with the people because of weakness, how could it be that the Son of God who made the universe and who is the exact representation of God's being could possibly empathize with weak people like you and me? If you've got the power to create endless billions of stars, everything that is, just by speaking, and to maintain all of that in being just with your words, well, I don't know that weakness is the word that I would use to describe that sort of power. The Son of God is unimaginably powerful and is like his father in every respect, except that he is son, and the father is father. He knows all things perfectly. So he can't learn, because there's no new information or no new way of looking at things that he doesn't already possess. He can't be tempted, because his nature is entirely good and pure. Evil has no attraction to him. He's not weak because he has all power. How could that son possibly sympathize with you? Possibly understand what life is like for you? in a world where it is so much easier often to do the wrong thing than the right thing. In a world where there is so much more that we don't know than that we do. Where we often feel lost and confused. How could the eternal Son of God who made everything, who knows everything and who has never been tempted possibly understand what it is like for you to be you? And how could you possibly come to a God like that and believe that he understands you? That's point two on the job description of the high priest, isn't it? It's, it's essential in the person spec. No one can be a high priest who doesn't sympathize who isn't able to deal gently. How could the eternal Son of God possibly do that? That's why this passage is actually very appropriate for us 
on Advent Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent, as we begin our journey towards Christmas and we think about the fact that God himself, unimaginably great, so vast that he fills the universe and the universe cannot contain him, became a tiny baby. Actually became one of us. Lived as a human being in the world. That, I think, is why in verse 14, the writer puts together the name Jesus with the Son of God. He's presenting to us the Son of God, but also reminding us that this is the baby who was called Jesus. So in verse 7, towards the bottom of the page on the left, it says this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. In verse 1 and in verse 3 of chapter 5, we read about the high priest offering sacrifices. And the writer picks up that language and says, Jesus offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And he's pointing us to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the night when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus prayed fervently for himself, but also for the people he had come for. And he prayed If it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Now, if you want to know more about that symbolism, do join us tonight when we're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. But that cup represents God's wrath at evil, God's hatred of evil. And evil that all of us have done and said and thought. And there is Jesus spiritually preparing to drink that cup to take into himself all the consequences of everything we've done wrong. And he says to God, let it be taken from me. If there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And then Jesus says, but not my will, but yours be done. The writer of the Hebrews looks at that moment and says, that is the moment when Jesus became our perfect high priest. He offered up, just as the high priest offers up sacrifice, he offers up those prayers and petitions and fervent cries and is heard because of his obedience, his reverent submission. In that moment of agony and temptation, Jesus chose to give himself entirely And so we come to one of the most extraordinary verses in the New Testament. And you can see that the writer knows that it's extraordinary and hard to swallow in one sense. He says, verse 8, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. How can the Son of God be said to be made perfect? Well, it's not in the sense that he was in any way imperfect. It's in the sense that to be our high priest, he had to be able to sympathize with us. 
He had to learn obedience in the sense of going through the struggle to disobey and choose to obey. The writer's also beginning uh, to hint at a big difference from the other priests that will come up as we go through the book of Hebrews. That is that he doesn't offer bulls or goats on behalf of the people. He offers himself. In that moment, as he offers up cries and prayers and petitions and tears, it is himself that he is offering. And in going through that struggle, in facing that temptation, but not sinning, choosing God's way, not his own, he is made perfect as our high priest. Both the priest and the sacrifice he is. And the language of perfection is the language of completeness. That's the moment when he completes the job description, the person spec and so becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So then if we look back up to verse 14, and we just read those last three verses of chapter four, I think it all swims into focus for us what the writer's saying. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. It's a double negative. But it's a double negative to sort of show the, 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 in one sense, how absurd it is, how wonderful, how miraculous, how mysterious it is that this high priest who is the son of God is able to sympathize with your weakness, with my weakness. We do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Now, it's worth just taking a little sidebar there and saying, where it says he's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, some of us have the kind of brains where we, we, we read that and we think, well, hang on a moment. I'm pretty sure that Jesus was never tempted to troll everyone, anyone on the internet. Of course, it's not in every detail in the same way. But he has experienced temptation to its fullness. That's the point. And actually, Jesus has experienced temptation in a way that none of us ever has. Because he saw it all the way through to the end. Temptation gets harder the more you push back against it. And all of us know the experience that in one sense is a relief of giving in to temptation. But Jesus never allowed himself that relief. And there in the garden, faced with the greatest temptation of all, that is to look out for himself and not for his people, with the horror of facing Complete isolation, being cut off from God, being cut off from his friends, being cut off from everything. He chose that in order to be obedient to his father, to complete his mission, which was to come and to suffer for us. So Jesus has been tempted as far as it is possible to be tempted. And yet, unlike Aaron, unlike the other high priests, he did not sin. 
He knows your weakness. He knows what it is to be made of flesh and blood. He didn't float some sort of two feet above the the land of the Holy Land. It's not that the dust of life never got on him. He lived in a family. He knew what it was to have siblings who saw him as a rival. He knew what it was to have parents who would sometimes make entirely unreasonable requests of him. He knew what it was to have friends who couldn't be trusted. He knew what it was to be hungry, to be alone, to be afraid. He understands you. He's able to deal with you gently. But he is our perfect high priest because he had nothing for which he needed to be forgiven. So the writer says in verse 9, he's the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He actually points to to that also in, in verse 14. He ascended into heaven. Now the ascension is something that often in English churches we don't pay enough attention to. That Jesus has ascended into heaven, that thing that happens 40 days after Easter Sunday. But Jesus hasn't entered into an earthly temple or tabernacle like the one we heard about in in Exodus. The tabernacle where God's presence was manifested on earth, but which we learned was a, a model of heaven, the throne of God, where the high priest would once a year and once a year only be able to enter into the holiest place in that tabernacle, into the presence of God to make sacrifice. But even then he had bells on the bottom of his robe so that you'd know if he'd stopped moving and you could haul him out. Because to be in the presence of almighty, holy God is a a, a terrifying and dangerous thing for a human being to do. And that's just with an earthly tabernacle. But Jesus has gone through the heavens. He has gone to the throne of God himself for his people. What he offers isn't a temporary sort of brushing clean of the detritus of life, of the, of the sins that accumulate. He has offered a once and for all and perfect cleansing and salvation for his people. He has brought us right into the very presence of God himself safely and permanently so that our home is with God, not at a distance, but right up close. Say verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I don't know how you think about God. I don't know what you would think would be the person specification on the job description of someone looking to live in God's presence, looking to enter heaven, looking to get close to the unimaginably glorious and holy God who made this entire universe, where even the scale of the universe is beyond our capacity to imagine it. How great must the God who made it all be? What does the job description 
say about the sort of person who could approach him? I wonder whether you think you measure up. Whether you think that God is someone that you can safely draw close to. Astonishingly, the writer of the Hebrews says to us, with confidence, or literally with boldness, with freedom of speech, as if you were entering the home of your parents. But the writer of the Hebrews says, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus has that freedom, that confidence to enter the very throne room of God and not expecting to find a a, a wagging finger or disapproval, but actually to find mercy and grace. What a thing it is to have a God as great as this who yet has found a way to understand you to treat you gently, to treat you with mercy and with grace. So the writer to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit speaking through the writer to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit speaking to us this morning, says, so let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Given that we have a high priest who's gone into heaven, who's made access to the throne of God available, who understands us, who sympathizes with our weakness, where else are you going to turn? What better thing could there be than to own the name of Jesus, to confess his name, to speak his name, to trust in him, So the writer says, let us hold firmly and let us approach. On what basis? On the basis that God has done the impossible. God has found a way to be like you. The God who cannot suffer has found a way to suffer. The God who cannot learn has found a way to learn obedience and so become perfect. The God who cannot die has found a way to die for you. Where else are you going to turn? What else in all creation or in all reality could possibly offer you what Jesus offers you? God has done something unimaginably wonderful and we will spend eternity still trying to wrap our heads around the fact that the Son of God became the Son of Mary. That God himself can sympathize with us and understand us. So don't hold back from him. Don't shy away from him. You can approach him to find mercy and grace in your time of need. What a wonderful savior Jesus is. What an extraordinary, almost unbelievable thing Christmas is as a result.